scripture lesson is from the Gospel according to St. John, the 20th chapter, verses 19 through 23. John 20, 19 through 23, in our subject, the Holy Spirit and the Redeemed Man. John 20. Verses 19 through 23. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the disciples were shut, where the disciples, where the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. When he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his sides. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me. Even so, send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. We have in the last few weeks studied the doctrine of indwelling. We've also analyzed the significance of godly giving by the indwelled man, the principle of polarity, for the Lord loveth a cheerful or hilarious giver. Now let us turn our thoughts to the Holy Spirit and the redeemed man. The redeemed man is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. What does this mean specifically? To understand the meaning of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, let us begin simply by analyzing the word spirit. The word spirit, apart from holy, just as it exists in scripture and is their use. We encounter it first in Genesis 1, where we are told that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep. And that God breathed or spirited man. The word for spirit, very literally in scripture, is ruach, which is translated very often as wind, air and motion, or breath. A British doctor and student of Hebrew, Dr. James Pierre Howard has 
written on the subject, and I quote, Any unusual manifestation of power or energy could be described as having or showing more spirit. This is often used in relation to God-given vitality for some special purpose. What is important to note is that every, in every instance, to be filled with spirit implied action. Indeed, one could go so far as to say that to be filled with spirit, not engaged in some activity, not performing some action, is a contradiction in terms. Unquote. Now, how much more this is the case with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is well known in the Old Testament. The prophet spoke of the fullness of his manifestation, however, as in the future, in the time of the Messiah. Before his death and resurrection, our Lord said to his disciples at the Last Supper, concerning the Spirit, Ye know him, for he abideth with you and shall be in you. After the resurrection, the gift of the Spirit was given to the assembled disciples, as described in our scripture reading. Subsequently, the gifts of the Spirit were given at Pentecost. Now in our scripture, our Lord tells his disciples, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, or it could be translated, he blew, and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, what was he doing here? Very, very clearly, this is a reenactment of the creation of man. We are told in Genesis 2, 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. God breathed, he spirited into man the breath or the spirit of life. Man became a living soul. Now the Greek word that is here used is which is the word which the Septuagint, the Greek translation of scripture, used in Genesis 2, 7. Very, very emphatic. What we have here is a deliberate reenactment of the creation of man in Genesis 2 7. Christ, in effect, is saying that the recreation of man as the new Adam in Christ is my work. And whereas the 
for us was simply spirit, the breath of life. Now it is the Holy Spirit that indwells man and sets him apart from the unredeemed man. The Holy Spirit thus indwells the mind, soul, or spirit of the believer as his essential life, as his motivating purpose. The Holy Spirit is the breath, the wind, or, as it can be rendered, the rushing energy, the motivating purpose of the new man. Yet at the same time, he is the third person of the Trinity, reigning in all eternity. Our Lord deliberately echoed Genesis 2-7. He recreated man, and he sent man forth, saying, As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. It is now your purpose to recreate even as you have been recreated. To reorder all things in terms of my sovereign law word. In Genesis 14, 12, our Lord, after he had spoken about the Holy Spirit, declared unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I shall do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now some people have chosen to interpret that in terms of the works, the miracles, the disciples did. They did raise the dead, they did heal the sick and cause the blind to see. They did perform great and marvelous miracles. The time of miracles ended with the fall of Jerusalem. Now, Lord did not say that these greater works were the works of the disciples, but of he that believeth on me, all of us. What he had reference to was the remaking of all things, of the whole world, in terms of Christ and his work. This is our call. God sent Christ into the world to give his life a ransom for many, and to regenerate his people, his elect. Now Christ sends us into the world to regenerate, to remake the whole world, and to bring it into conformity to his work. Then next, as we read in the scriptures, we find that Cleopas and the other disciples, as they left Jerusalem, and our Lord walked with them 
They in their grief and sorrow, their eyes blinded, could not recognize him. Spoke of Jesus as a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all his Matthew 13, 24, we read that it was said of our Lord, Whence hath this man this wisdom, these mighty works? Now, this expression, mighty in deed and works, is echoed throughout the Old Testament, throughout the scriptures of the Spirit, Filled man. So that the mark of the new man in Jesus Christ is the same. To have the indwelling of the Spirit is to be marked by wisdom, by energy, and by power. It is the mark of the believer. When we examine the United States, we find that approximately 120 million of the 200 million are church members. Of these 120 million, 40 million claim to be Bible-believing Christians. Are they right in their faith? Scripture gives us ground for judgment. By their fruit shall ye know them. It tells us that the Spirit means energy, power. Can we call those 40 million men who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit? I do not see how we can. The text is in the fruit. When a handful of communists and Fabian socialists can exercise more power in the United States than 40 million evangelicals, you will have to say that the spirit is absent there. There is no energy rushing forth power working in them. We have a form of godliness, as St. Paul said. They lack the power thereof. Remember Dr. Howard's words, which I quoted earlier. His words based on an analysis of the meaning of the word spirit. He said, and I quote, to be filled with spirit implied action. Indeed, one could go so far as to say that to be filled with the spirit and not engaged in some activity. Not performing some action is a contradiction in terms. Unquote. The idea of impotent Christians, therefore, is nonsense. It is an impossibility. It is a contradiction in terms. A Christian is one who has the indwelling spirit. He is then energized. He is motivated. And whether his rock be a humble one or a great one, wherever he is, there is a difference. 
power of the Christian is tied to the Spirit and to the Word. He breathed on them. Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, it is very interesting how the Scripture makes a play on the meaning of the word Spirit because it can also mean wind. The first psalm gives us such a play on the word. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. Whatsoever he doeth, The picture of the godly man, therefore, is a man of some stubbornness, hardly stubbornness. He does not drift with the crowd. He resists the trend of the time. He delights in the law of the Lord. He is like a tree he has roots. But, the psalmist then says, the ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Very interesting. The ungodly are driven by the wind, driven by the spirit. Just as chaff, dead leaves, are blown and carried hither and yon by the wind, so are the ungodly. That's not the God. The spirit, the wind, the energy, the driving force, is no longer outside them, but in them. They are not driven, they drive. They are the motivating force, not the ones that are pushed and carried with the past. Then our Lord went on to say, Whosoever sins he remits, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins he retains, they are retained. The gift of the Spirit is ministerial also, a declarative power to bind and to lose. He touched on this a few weeks ago, but it is important and bears repetition. A ministerial or a declarative power is one which does not originate with us, but is given to us to administer. 
So that when in faithfulness to the law of God, we declare to a man because you have fulfilled the conditions of God's word, your sins are remitted. What we do on earth is that which is done in heaven. Our word has a binding power and a loosing power. And we tell a man, because you have not fulfilled God's conditions, your sins are bound unto you. They are bound in heaven, because God is faithful to his word. It means, therefore, and the man who is indwelled by the Spirit, who knows the word of God and moves in terms of it, knows that his actions are consonant with the power of heaven. And he can move in the certainty of that ministerial declarative power. The Holy Spirit makes us a new man, a new Adam in Christ. And the significance of the indwelling of the Spirit is that now we have the work of Adam to do. Greater work to reconquer the whole earth of Christ, to declare his word, to show forth the majesty of his power, the greatness of his salvation, and in all things to declare him king of kings and Lord of Lords. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit thus means that energy, power, has been unloosed in the world. It is within us. We are the driving force. And we are to move in terms of the certainty that the Spirit is faithful to his work. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that Jesus Christ has redeemed us, remade us, and breathed into us thy Holy Spirit. And now the Spirit of Light, the third person of the Trinity, indwells in us guide, to govern, and to rule us, and to establish thy position in and through. Make us therefore zealous in thy service, constant in our work, and faithful to thy work, that we may be more than conquerors through him that loved us, even Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. Yes. Our Lord treated them as regenerate. This did not mean they were mature or had a
full grasp of the implications of his teaching until after the resurrection, but they were regenerate. Yes. He comes before our conversion at the point of regeneration, and it is he who guides us into accepting Christ step by step throughout our growth and our development. have 
naturally some remarkable recuperative power. Thus, it's been demonstrated that there's a difference when a man is hypnotized between his normal strength and the strength that the hypnotist tells him he has when he is told you are the strongest man in the world. He will do things that normally he could never do. And this is tested on machines such as gripping machines and other things. Or when he tells them that he's the weakest man in the world. So that we have tremendous power in this respect. There's no question, furthermore, that what the hypnotist does fairly taps the surface in that when a man is a believer, he again has greater resources, the resources of faith, of trust in God, of prayer. In Europe a few years back, in this century, sometime about 20 years ago, some studies were conducted in a hospital. It was impossible to make it precise because it's not an area where any two ailments could be duplicates of each other. But a test was run the rate of recovery from the same type of surgery for Christians and non-Christians. First of all, the survival rate of Christians in any given type of surgery was greater. And second, the recovery rate was far more rapid. So there was no question there was a very definite difference. Now, when any Christian, whether by going as Christian path through the centuries on pilgrimages to certain places or by prayer in his home, commits himself to God, there's no question that very, very often there are healings that take place. For example, I'm told that one uh, missionary who's been serving in uh, East Pakistan and went through the whole of the uh, civil war there and had a very fearful sales celibate who was just here and returned recently who had uh, leukemia and on his return collapsed from it in Japan had to have transfusions again and it was the 15th time he'd had to have transfusions and his veins collapsed while he was in the hospital in Japan and he was in a very critical condition and another missionary was there with him when he collapsed Knowing the work of the man and how greatly and desperately he needed, he prayed intensely and earnestly for the man. 
the man went into unconsciousness and then had deep sleep and three days later got out of bed and has had no further problem with leukemia. Now these things happen. And what we do have to say is that while the miracles that take place now are different and in a sense supernormal rather than supernatural in the old sense, they definitely manifest the grace and mercy of God. Yes. Was the question, could I relate superstition to miracles? you could say yes, but there are certain types of healings that take place that are of an emotional character. Thus, many of these faith healers are able to give what seems to be a healing because they tend to specialize in emotional disorders or psychosomatic ailments that are a product of an emotional block. And as a result, very, very often they seem to do very remarkable things. A person who is very much crippled by a type of arthritis that is a product of an emotional block or disorder, sometimes able to walk away from a platform without the pressures they were using. Now, hypnotists are able to do the same thing. There's a very serious problem connected with this type of healing. You eliminate one thing, but you don't eliminate the root problem. If there's a spiritual problem, a mental problem that is leading to this kind of thing, then the one disorder goes away and something more serious appears. This is why, not too many years ago, some doctors began to experiment, and some psychiatrists in particular, with uh, hypnotism, found that they were curing certain conditions, clearing them up, when they were emotionally, psychologically induced. But very quickly, another condition would appear which would often be far more serious. So, there's no real healing there. It's just that the ailment has changed its face. Yes. Yes, very good. Right. Yes. Yeah. 
the idea that the Old Testament did not teach eternal life or that it did not teach uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and some of these other things is something that has grown up in the Christian era. The best answer to that is the New Testament because the whole effectiveness of the preaching in the apostolic age was that everything that our Lord referred to in the Old Testament as being fulfilled in himself and everything that the apostolic preaching referred to was what the Jews believed. In other words, all the interpretation of Scripture up to the end of the first century held very definitely that the Messiah was going to come, that he would be virgin born, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would come in terms of Isaiah 51 to give his life as a ransom for many, and so on. This is all known. In fact, their thinking was Trinitarian. They knew that there was God the Father, God the Wisdom or Logos or Word, and then God the Holy Spirit. That was precisely because the Jews everywhere believed this, that the apostolic preaching was so telling among them. All the apostles did was to go throughout the empire, and they would go, if you remember from the book of Acts, the synagogue, first of all. And they'd always win a portion of them as converts. And half the synagogue of Rome, by the time of St. Paul's death, had become Christian were Christian synagogues. Now, it was precisely because all they had to do was to say, look, here's what we've always believed about the Messiah, about eternal life, about all these things. And here is Jesus. He fits the bill perfectly, does he not? And they would have to say, of course he does. Of course he does. And they would either accept Christ or rise up in wrath against them and throw them out. They couldn't answer. Now, it was because there was this problem that after the fall of Jerusalem, the rabbis began to feel what we must do is to change the meaning, reinterpret the Old Testament scriptures so that they can no longer make use of them because the Christians are taking all these scriptures and applying them to Christ. So we will take a new attitude. We will say, these things mean something else. And it was then that they began the emphasis on, well, uh, we believe purely in a political order. Our concern is not with the hereafter. These... Uh, ideas of the Messiah refer to a political figure or to the Jewish race as a whole and so on. All these things came after the fall of Jerusalem. So there is no evidence whatsoever 
this was the case. In fact, the whole presupposition of the Old Testament was exactly what we as Christians believe. And uh, over and over again throughout the Psalms, the assumption is that uh, 23rd Psalm, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is just assumed. And the modern opinion, of course, is not. It is interesting that to this day the you have not only this kind of thing, but an assertion that, uh, well, Israel believes in free will and so on. Well, before the service, I was reading this uh, mourner's kaddush or manual for a Jewish servant. That's interesting. Here they deny free will, and they're still using a traditional ritual, which goes back to the early centuries of the Christian era, which still asserts predestination. So every time they have a funeral, they're denying what they're teaching all the time. They still recite the Hebrew prayers which affirm predestination. But they deny it officially. Yes, they have. And their opinions are highly uh, modern in many areas. Not only the gap theory with regard to Genesis 1, which has been a product of evolutionary thinking, but the whole idea of the rapture originated in the Edward Irving Circle of the early 1800s, about 1834, you there about, in England, where you had uh, speaking in tongues. And it was among some of these tongues people that the idea of the rapture originated. It was never known in Christendom until then. Totally new idea. And now it's one of the basic aspects of the dispensational uh, faith, the premillennial faith. Are there any other questions? Well, if not, let us bow our heads for the benediction. And now go in peace. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost bless you in peace, guide and protect you. This day and often.